Amen. Thanks, Mason. Appreciate it. Good morning again. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. I said that earlier. Some of you are still coming in. Um, Welcome to Legacy. You're catching us as we start a new series. We actually started it last week, but if you have a Bible or device, turn to John 1. We're working our way through the book of John in a series we have called Hero, and today is a super cool passage. We're still in what's called the prologue, actually, which means we're in the beginning of the beginning. But I do believe that this passage today will show us Jesus more clearly. And I explained last week why I say that every single week. I always say the same thing every week. Turn to this passage. It will show us Jesus more clearly. And that's because I believe that all the Bible, all the Bible works to point out the climactic picture of what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus Christ. I found this great quote. I'd forgotten that I had it locked away all this time. But in Prince Caspian... It's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote. There's this little interchange between Aslan, the lion, the Jesus figure in the story, and Lucy. Lucy comes up to Aslan, and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, said Aslan. She answered, not because you're bigger? No, I'm not, he said, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I think that's true for the Christian life. I think that as we grow and as we mature, our Jesus grows and matures. Not that he physically grows, but our concept, our, our, our apprehension of who he is starts to expand. In fact, if your Jesus is not expanding, if your Jesus is not more fascinating to you, intoxicating to you, there's a really good chance you're not growing. If your Jesus is the same size as he was whenever you were six years old, or 12 years old, there's a good likelihood that you're not maturing. That's why we like to say year after year and week after week and passage after passage, let's look and to see what God is saying to us that we would see Jesus more beautifully and more clearly than we've ever seen him before. And this goes for me too, by the way. And so last week we looked at the first three verses. That's as far as we got. Today we're going to do another 15. We're not going to go three verses at a time. I know some of you are panicking. Don't panic. But last week we looked at the fact that of all the good sermons you may hear in your lifetime from whatever preacher, God's very best sermon to you is through the person of Jesus Christ, this beautiful, ever-existing creator who entered into our, our normal, putting on skin like you and me, tenting with us, dwelling with us as he walks with us and leads us through our own various wildernesses to a better promised land. This week I'd like to do something a little bit different. My hope is to show you why you grab for things and rank them higher than Jesus on your rankings. And I know ranking is probably an odd term to use. It's definitely not one that you use um, or hear often when, when it comes to Jesus. But mankind is good at ranking things. We like to rank things. You, you gravitate towards the magazine that has a ranking or the article that ranks the best barbecue in the country or whatever it is. Because what it does is it allows us to put the things of higher perceived value above inferior things, from one all the way down. Pretty soon, the preseason college football top 25 will be coming out, right? I'm sure Tennessee will be on it. And I'm excited to see that ranking. Not that it's really legit, because no one's played a game yet, but you know what I mean. I'm excited to see who is more valuable than the others, where the rankings fall. By the end of the season, I usually have it almost memorized, you know, when it is legit. 
Uh, Forbes, they rank the best companies, the best entrepreneurs, the best CEOs, the best cities to grow a business in. People does the sexiest man alive every year after year after year, right? We love to rank things. I mean, we live in an age of the star system. You watch a movie on Netflix, rank it. Three stars, four stars, no stars, right? Amazon purchases, restaurants. Mankind can rank just about anything according to its perceived value. And we do this personally as well, don't we? We have this unspoken ranking system in our lives where we put things in order as to how it brings us life, as to how it meets our needs, our unsolvable questions are answered by what's high on that ranking list. We all have it. Example, my wife ranks higher than my kids, right? Sorry, kids, I love you a bunch. I just love your mom a lot more than you. (laughs) I keep a hammock in my truck at all times just to use in cases of emergency, right? That ranks higher than fishing, only because fishing isn't even on my ranking system, right? Brisket ranks higher than hummus, and I don't even need to explain that. (laughs) I think even if I'm being really honest, work ranks higher than rest. See how that works? It shouldn't, but it does. We all have a ranking system where we take whatever is of perceived value and we say it is more more superior or inferior to another slot. And you could tell what someone's ranking system is around you just by looking at their life. It's super clear, isn't it? It's where they spend all of their treasure. It's where they spend all of their resources. It's where they spend their conversations and spend their dreaming. And we all have one. I think we also want to rank high on other people's ranking system, don't we? We want to be very high up on their list. So we want to be the best parents. We want to be the most outdoorsy, the best looking, the smartest, the most innovative, the most up to task, the most just, I guess, spiritual, the most entrepreneurial. That's a big one today for some weird reason, right? To be the most entrepreneurial, to be the most local. It's not good enough to live local, you have to buy local, you have to wear local, you have to only stay local. That's a big thing right now. The most paleo, because it's not good enough to have kale, it better be paleo kale right now, right? I didn't even know there was a difference. We want to be the most scruffy, the most humble, the most something, something to somebody, something on their list and high up on it. What do you think Jesus thinks of our ranking systems? Just consider it for a moment. Is he against it? Does he just want to be on the top of it? Both the one you keep personally, and what do you even think he feels towards you wanting to be high on someone else's ranking system? And how do we just stop the madness? I mean, really stop. Not for like three minutes, but stop. I think this passage is going to help us. I do think we will see Jesus more clearly. So look at John 1, verse 1. We're going to reread the first three verses. And this is the word of God to us today. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he changes gears just a bit. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That is supposed to sound absurd, by the way. That is supposed to just sound crazy. So if you feel that way, you're reading it right. Verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will or the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay. What I would like to do is find one key point, but I'm going to take a little bit to unpack it. The beginning of the statement I would like for you to hear repeatedly today is this. Jesus shines brilliantly before all mankind, even as many will run away. We see that very clearly. Jesus shines brilliantly as a light before all mankind, and many will run away. We see this most in verse 4, in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This light, it's speaking of salvation, okay? Just to make it very easy on all of us. It's speaking of salvation piercing into the darkness, and that darkness is nothing, nothing less than just the dark, dead souls of billions and billions of people and nations and people groups and kingdoms It's where we used to be. If you, in fact, are in Jesus, this is where you used to be, is in the darkness until that light pierced in and found you. It's where God salvaged us from. We see this very clearly in Ephesians 5. Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Paul also says to a different church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, and they're all talking about the same thing. I know you see that. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So darkness comes, or forgive me, light comes, but darkness is not able to overcome it. Now, some of your Bibles don't say overcome. Some of your Bibles say comprehend. Right? It's not to be confused, though. It's the, the Greek word means actually both. Right? It, it could either nuance a grabbing with violence or force, or it could just mean simply understand. And the darkness is not able to do either one. So John is basically saying light pierces into the darkness, and the darkness cannot apprehend it and cannot comprehend it. And when this light comes, it divides the race of man. There is no neutral it literally divides mankind. Some will run away from the light. I did this for many years. Run away. Why? Because the light comes, you can see your dirt and your filth, and you want to hide your passions, you want to hide your wants, you want to hide all of those deep desires, and the only way you can do that and sleep well at night is to be away from the light. But sometimes that light pierces the darkness and people kind of 
crowd towards it. They see the, the dirt, but the light also shows them Jesus, who is the definitive answer to our dirt. So no one can avoid this light, and neutral does not exist. Jesus truly enters our ranking system and demands the number one spot. Demands it. Some will receive this truth, and some will deny it. So if I was to drive this into some very quick application, I know some of you are not what we would call close to Jesus, but you are far from Jesus. Some of you, Jesus is a concept you're trying to warm up to. You, you, would, you might be called an unbeliever or lost by some. We just use the term far from Jesus here. So you might look at Jesus and be okay with him being in your ranking system, but only as a contributor, not a ruler. He can't be at the top. He has to be around like slot number 72 or, or place number 38. Nowhere near the top. Let me help you if you're here and you're just checking Jesus out. The first thing God does out of love for you is show you how dirty you are. That's actually a sign of love. It's the first thing he does. Light exposes the dirt, and that is a grace of God to us. Because the gospel is radically freaky, scary, before it is beautiful, fascinating, and spectacular. The good news is answering some really bad news. But God's grace shows us the dirt so that the good news even makes sense. So that exposure to how gritty you are and how sleazy you feel, that is nothing more than Jesus approaching you with his deep love, the depth of his pursuit and his concern and his excitement for you. And no, he does not want you to stay there. He wants to clean you. He wants to love you and draw you close. But he wants that top rank, right? He wants that top rank. Becoming a Christian does mean that some things on your ranking scale needs to go, but everything needs to bow. Some things that you cherish highly will need to go forever. When I became a Christian as a young college student, some things I knew I had to jettison from my cares and my heart, but, something, but, but I knew that all things needed to bow. He got the top slot. That I got. He was to be Lord of everything. So... You need to know that God is after you, and if you feel the grit and the sleaze and the slime, that is just Jesus pursuing you, and that is a grace. Now, some of you are not far from Jesus. Some of you are close to Jesus, and as a missionary, you need to, and we do believe that all Christians are missionaries. You might be a crappy one, but you're a missionary. And you need to know that as you're bringing things to them that have to do with Jesus, you're reading a Bible passage to them, or you're having a conversation, when that light comes, their stuff is being exposed. Now, sometimes they will crowd and ask questions. A lot of times, they're going to run, though, because they're being exposed. And it's hard to tell what's going on sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes when you're bringing the gospel, you don't know if they're fleeing or if they're crowding. You don't know if they're receiving or if they're denying. That's why we need the Holy Spirit, by the way. We need the Holy Spirit to kind of give us that discernment of knowing what to say and when to say and how to care for them, how to pray for them, how to speak to them. Some won't receive Jesus at all. They just won't. Because the human heart wants what the human heart wants, and they are not going to let you or Jesus get in the way and might not be your gospel preaching, it's just their hard heart. The Bible tells us that this will happen. The best thing you can do is just pray. 
Man, pray. And I mean pray with everything. Pray that God crowds them. Pray that God shows them, loves them, pursues them relentlessly. And you will need to show them as missionaries. You will need to show them how Jesus will not compete with their ranking system. He's not satisfied with slot number 72. You have to paint that picture for them. Or else, Jesus just becomes a contributor to their rank, a contributor to their list, but not anything that rules over the whole list. You have to teach them and you have to emphatically show them that Jesus is good news, but there was bad news that he answers as well. If Jesus just becomes a separate piece of good news, it's only good and there is no bad news, there's probably nothing really wrong with you, but you could add Jesus and certainly your, your, your life will get better, then that's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. Before the gospel is good, good news for us, help them, lead them to see that there is bad news to be answered. It's very important. I need to move on. I'd like to unpack that statement a little bit further by saying that Jesus shines brilliantly before all mankind, even as many run away, or, new, new edition, or chase shiny objects instead. Enter the picture of John the Baptist. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on the person of John the Baptist. He pops up in some key roles here a little bit later on in the story, and we will camp out on him a little bit later there. But right here, I just want to show you that he was sent from God to point to Jesus, but was not Jesus. And in, in this passage makes it clear two or three times. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John was impressive. Now, this is John the baptizer, not John that wrote the gospel. They're both impressive. But the baptizer was super impressive, and if had he been alive today, he'd have a large following. Lots of people would love and crowd around him. He'd say, make Israel great again. He'd have the trucker hat on. He'd say, look, 400 years of silence. Our nation has been headed downhill. We need change. You need to repent. People were lining up. He was provocative. He was clear. He was pronounced. He was unswerving. He was unflappable. It's John the Baptist. Even Jesus says, I tell you, among all who are born of women, there's none quite like John. But as impressive as he is, he's not the light. He points to the light. He's not. That's why you see that phrase, true light earlier or really in the middle of that passage because a lot of scholars believe that people kind of went off the skids a little bit thinking that John was actually, they thought that people were mixed up and it wasn't Jesus that was the Savior, it was John the baptizer. That's why it says true light right there. The point I'd like to make though is that all the great things you love, all the good things you spend time on, even the ones that God has given you are meant to point to Jesus, not be a Jesus. They're shiny. They're meant to point to Jesus, but not be Jesus. This is what we see John doing. I mean, that was his sermon all the time, wasn't it? Repent, and by the way, I'm not Jesus. Turn from your sins, and by the way, one's coming after me. He was shiny. He was pointing elsewhere. You know, I love Jesus. I'm a thankful child of God, and still today I am drawn to shiny things. Are you? 
drawn to shiny objects that promise that they're going to bring deliverance, that promise that they're going to help us and fulfill us and meet all of our big special needs, but they never do. I'm like one of those stupid fish that swim around in the water and you see something shiny attached to the hook and I just keep biting it and biting it and biting it. It doesn't make any sense. I vault so many things to that number one slot when I'm not careful, thinking that surely this is what will bring me life, right? We call this an idol because as much as they promise that they will bring you life, it'll only underdeliver. It'll never perform quite like you think it will. We said several weeks ago in a different sermon altogether that the idol's favorite one-liner to Christians is that you are almost there. Isn't that how it sounds? Sell out a little bit more and you almost have what you want. Give a few more hours to work per week and then then you will be satisfied. You'll finally get what you want. That guy, that girl will finally give you what you want. You're almost there. It's a lie though. I think we all know it's a lie. And you know the trickiest idols are the good things, the shiny things, the great things, even the God-given things to us. John the baptizer here helps me see that by pointing elsewhere, reminding me that God has given us a lot of great things and a lot of good things that also point elsewhere. But we're not careful. We will take that shiny thing and move it to the top. I'll give you a couple examples. Your marriage. It's a God-given gift. Marriage. But what marriage is, marriage is, it just points to something much bigger, much more cosmic, where God the groom collects to him As a sacrifice, he lays himself down, so a sacrificial groom collects a trusting, dependent bride in the most beautiful of all relationships. This is what our marriage is supposed to look like. I've done some weddings for some of you in here, and I say the same line in all the weddings. Your marriage is the greatest illustration of the gospel you will probably ever preach. Certainly preach the gospel with your mouth but you will most definitely preach it with your marriage. God could have considered any way to propagate the human race, but he chooses what we consider today the very boring and normal basic institution of marriage. I want you to consider, married people, consider this. Your marriage is not about you. It's not about you. It's about a better groom. It's about a different bride It's meant to point to God, not be a God. If you make this your light, if you make that your number one slot, this God-given shiny thing, your spouse Jesus will fail you every single day because he or she will fail to deliver those big needs, those God-side needs that you have inside of you. Now work, work is another one. Some of you are like, work's not good. That's not shiny at all. I run from that. Work is a good gift that God has given you. We, we, and we've talked about this here before as well. In work, we nurture our broken gardens to God's glory. And it points to how Jesus enters our broken garden, lives a perfect life for us as a second Adam, reversing the curse upon creation, fixing us as he breaks his own body so that we one day will never work, but we will rest eternally. It's a beautiful thing. It's supposed to point. It's not about getting the bills paid. It's about Jesus. But if you make this your light and you vault work to the top slot in your ranking system, 
And you will always be let down. That's an even worse Jesus because you can't even make out with work, right? You could at least make out with your spouse. Work is a horrible Jesus. Your resume could never swell enough to really satisfy your needs. I don't think anyone in here would disagree with that. Consider this. Consider that God has given you your work, even, yes, your crappy job. God has given you your job, your work, whatever garden you're tending, if you're homeschooling, whatever you're doing, God has given you that broken garden to image how he has handled our broken garden. It's a gospel portrait. So I'll get a little bit closer to the mark. What about family? Is family really about us? It's not. Isn't that crazy? Again, God could have considered any way to group people together and close relationships, but the family? It paints a picture of a firstborn that collects us to a better father, adopting us into a forever family that we can never be unadopted from. Our families and how we handle our families are supposed to paint a different picture. If you make family your light, your number one spot, you will crush everybody. You will destroy your family doing this because you need them to meet your needs, especially the kiddos crumbling and just coming apart under the weight of all of our big, heavy expectations. Have you noticed that yesteryear's latchkey kids are becoming this year's helicopter parents? Hovering, bubble wrapping our kids because we swear that we're going to make our kids better than we were. We're going to do a better job as parents than than our parents did with us. My kids aren't going to end up like everyone else's kids. Sounds like it's a little bit more about you than it is about your kids at that point. You need to feel a certain way. You're using your kids to get that. What about the Bible? Do you see how we can do this very easily? What about the Bible? All the Bible is is God's beautiful story, his message to you and me about how he is recovering and redeeming his covenant people, all climaxing in the person of Jesus Christ. It points to Jesus Christ, but it isn't Jesus Christ. Even Jesus says to some people in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus is saying, hey, nerds, put the Bible down. Put the Bible down. It feels like such a sin to even say something like that, doesn't it? That Bible is talking about me. Jesus says, I'm right here. Take care of that. Take care that you don't read the Bible. Take care that you don't peer into the Bible looking for the answers, vaulting it to the number one thing on your list. Consider that whenever you read the Bible, the goal is to become more in love with God, not to break the behavior code, not to learn how to be a better obeyer, a better behavior, but to be a better lover. And if you're not careful, you'll fail in that. You'll end up worshiping the Bible. That becomes your answer, not Jesus in the Bible. What about the church? You see how easy this is to just take really good and great shiny things and vault it to the top? What about the church? All the church is, is is, is a foretaste of what heaven will look like someday without all the trouble and the weirdness, right? It's a foretaste. It's something beautiful that God built by the blood of his son. And now that sun is off building and preparing a better place for you and me to go and congregate again. It's a different looking church, I guess you could say. Now, if you make the church your light, your number one slot, you'll never be happy and you will always abuse the church. Consider the statement, I'm not being fed here. I'm not being fulfilled in this place. If you've not said it, 
at some point in time, at some church, you've certainly heard someone or spoken with someone who has said that. I'm not feeling fed here anymore. He, when he preaches, does not fulfill me anymore. Okay, it's not the church's job. It was never the church's job to feed or fulfill you. That's a burden placed on the church that belongs on Jesus. Jesus feeds. Christ feeds us, not the local church. It's a bit silly. It's like going, it's like going to a picture of a chocolate cake, eating it, the picture I mean, not the chocolate cake, and then being ticked off that it tastes like paper and not like chocolate cake. Just stop it. It's not the church's job. You see how we abuse and we destroy shiny things, even good things, even God things that were given to us to point to him. We can destroy it. If we vault it to the top thinking that is where true life and true light is to be found. That's why I love John's attitude here. John the baptizer, that is. He says, not it. He's really good at saying, not it. Have you caught that? Not it. That game we play when we're a kid, I still play it sometimes, right? Some things don't get old. <laughs> not it. Who's doing the dishes? Not it. That's what he does. These good things, these great things are not it. They just point. So here's the question I have for you. What good thing, what great thing even, what even God-given thing has ranked itself over Jesus in your life? That is an idol. We have to hunt those things all the time. Even this week, I mean, I caught myself as I was praying, as I was just meditating. I felt the Lord say something that he says to me all the time. Luke, you want this too bad. Luke, you want this a little bit too much. I mean, am I insufficient for you here, Luke? Am I falling short for you in this area? And Luke, even if I gave you this thing that you were really working hard to get, would that really make you happy? I mean, we know better, right? Yes, Lord, I know better. I know better. I want you to consider that in your life. Are you having that kind of conversation with the Lord? You know, if you are maybe far from Jesus in here, if you are not close to Jesus, there is some application in here because I know you've noticed yourself breaking people and breaking things, trying to siphon off of it anything that would meet your needs, fill your holes, be a remedy, whatever breaking things around you. I know they're shiny. And you feel like if you just give a little bit more, spend a little bit more, deposit a little bit more, it'll finally give you the light and the life it promises. It will not. You know this too. By now you know this. It will not. And if we are, I'd say, close to Jesus, if we are a Christian in this house today, have you noticed? Have you noticed your temptation to go to shiny things? and grab them and push them up to number one? I do. I notice it in my heart. You know, whenever I was in college, my first two years in college, I lived away from my hometown. I would always travel home. And I remember how proud I was one day because I bought a laser pointer pen. This is back when that was cool, by the way. I know they're like on keychains and stuff now. But back then it was like $80 for a pen this big, you know, that shot a little red laser. And I had one. I was one of the cool people. And I remember going home and shining that laser light on the floor and the dog would go nuts. And then it hit me. That dog has no idea what's going on, right? So I just 
tormented that thing. Up on the wall, down on the floor, up on the wall, down on the floor. That dog doing everything. Up on my mom, off my mom, on the couch, on my dad, on, on my brother, everywhere I could put it, you know, and that dog's just going nuts all over the place. And then one day, the Lord showed me, that's you. You're the stupid dog. <laughs> Chasing the laser everywhere it will go. Clueless to the fact that it's just a shiny thing on the wall and that there is a greater light. I love it when the Lord talks to me like that. And he just impresses something, you know? He did not impress that I had to stop doing that to the dog, though, so I kept doing it. But I want you to consider that thing in your life, whatever it is, that's sitting maybe a little bit too close to number one, if it's not number one. Imagine Jesus asking you, where is he insufficient? Where is Jesus insufficient for you? Where is he not enough? Right? And if you finally got that, whatever it is, work, relationship, whatever it is, if you finally got it, would you really be happy? Really be happy. I'm going to unpack the statement a little bit more that we've been working on. Jesus shines brilliantly before all mankind, even as many run away or chase shiny objects, but... But grace comes as God extends the right to be born again. I love verse 16 in our passage today. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That means grace stacked upon grace. It's cool language. Grace stacked upon grace, stacked upon grace. You have to have grace. It's God's grace that you even say there is a God. It's God's grace that you even see that you're dirty in the face of such a God. It's God's grace that you would even cry out that God's remedy would come and rescue you. All of that is by grace. You are led by the hand by God's grace. Grace, which we try to define as often as we can. It's God's favor, his treasure, his overwhelming mercy given to you as a gift, even if you drop it and fumble it, even as you kick it and run away from it, even as you deny it. God's grace comes to you totally despite you. And it doesn't run out. If grace ran out, it would be quantifiable, which means you could earn it and you could lose it. But it doesn't. It just keeps coming. You'll sin all day today. Grace will be there. You cannot plunge deeper in sin than where grace will plunge even deeper to recover you if you are in the Lord. That is how beautiful grace is. Grace stacked upon grace stacked upon grace. Jesus says in John 5 that we pass from death to life. He says a few chapters later that no one will pull us from his hand. Grace upon grace. Friends, listen, if that doesn't quicken your, 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 your heart rate a little bit, if that doesn't make your pulse jump a little bit, how beautiful God's grace is to you, you don't understand it. You, you don't understand it. Beg God to show you how beautiful his grace is. Because if giving up that number one spot is drudgery to you and you hate it and you don't want anything to do with it, then I would say take a very good hard look at your life because you've not been apprehended by grace. Ask God to show you. It's a beautiful thing. It's God's grace that allows me to say, Jesus, you could take the number one spot. Jesus, take the wheel. Here are the keys. I love it when you run the show. Nothing satisfies me like you satisfy me. 
You are Lord over my list. I don't say that so that he likes me more. I say that because he has already liked me. I don't say it so he'll love me and favor me. I say it because favor has already been dump trucked all over me. And I can't escape it. I can't outrun it. His grace is good. I'm going to unpack the statement one more time. It'll be the last time we do this. We're on our last point. But Jesus shines brilliantly before all mankind, even as many run away or chase shiny objects. But God's or but grace comes as God extends the right to be born again. And, and those newly born point to the one who outranks them. That's John's words, not mine. He is the one who's outranked me. We shine towards the one who radically shone towards us because that's what missional people do. God's missionaries are very good at redirecting attention. Not caring if they're number one on anyone else's list, but hoping that Jesus becomes the number one on everybody's list. Not trying to climb the ladder in everybody else's heart, but trying to show everybody that Jesus is the one who owns our hearts, loves us, it's a rally cry, not it. I'm not it. Surely you're impressed with the way I did this at work or the way I did, but I'm not it. I'm not it. It's a rally cry. But it goes against everything in us because we do want to rank high with other people. We don't want to shunt glory away to Jesus. We want to contain it all in ourselves. You know, missions is not a thing we do. It's a way we live. It's the Christian life. It's the Christian life. I want you to think about, think about those people that you're doing life on life with or you're at least close in rhythm with. You see during the day, you see during the week, the same people all the time at the gym, at work, wherever, that are far from Jesus, right? Do they see you saying not it? Are you having conversations with them where in some way, shape, or form, you are pointing? You are a shiny thing pointing. I'm not it. It's not me. It's God. It feels a little awkward when we do that, right? It, it usually comes on the heels of a compliment. Someone, oh, you're really good at this at work. I've noticed that you're really... And it feels like they're high-fiving you. And it, it feels like the polite thing to do would just be to say thank you, right? Receive the high-five. Don't let them hang, right? That's what would seem normal. It feels awkward to say, oh, it's, it's not really me. Listen, I mean, you should have seen me years ago. God has done something pretty cool in me. Now that feels awkward, doesn't it? Now they're looking at you like, okay, I just thought you did a great job, you know? They've got this weird look on their face. Are you having those moments? That awkward moment where they are dealing with the fact that you are not pointing to yourself, but you are pointing elsewhere, where you are truly being shiny. Are you having those moments? Living a life of not it is what makes you a missionary, not just being local with hipsters. Not just spending time with people who are far from Jesus. Congratulations. The lost world is doing that too. But are you able to be missional, pointing to another, our hero in those relationships? You know, so as I finish, I just want to address a couple different groups of people. One are those that I've referred to already a couple times, those who are far from Jesus, and I, I do believe you're here. Those who are far from Jesus. I just want to tell you your idols they are liars, and you will be in darkness forever if you continue to protect them. You could keep running and you can keep denying. It won't get any better for you. It simply will not. But some of you, the Lord is doing something. Sweaty palms, heart rate is fast, 
you're wondering what to do next, the Holy Spirit's doing something in you if that's the case. A little uncomfortable, wondering if you need to say something to somebody today, maybe not this week, maybe next week, maybe the, the week after that, the things that you wrestle through. That's the Holy Spirit working on you. Today is, listen, today is the day. Today is the day. There'll be people up here. Kevin and Rebecca will be up here. I'll be up here. You come and grab one of us and say, I don't even know why I'm here. That's usually how it is. I don't even know why I'm here. I'm just, I feel like I'm supposed to talk to you. I feel like something's happening and I don't know what to do with it. And we'll help you unpack that. Some of you, you are not what we would call far from Jesus, but you're really not very close to him either, right? Because you're kind of bored with him. You're unsatisfied with him. And I would say if passing from death to irrevocable life is not spectacular enough to you, and grace is not moving you to just abandon your life before God, something, something is cracked, friend. Certainly you know that. Something is wrong. If your Jesus is still the tiny Jesus that you saw at the age of seven on a flannel gram in Sunday school, something is wrong. Something is wrong. You've got to yield that number one spot. He's way too far down on your ranking system, and it's not where he belongs. There's no amount of foot traffic down any church aisle that will get you what you need. You need to abandon everything that you hold precious, knowing that some things will have to go, everything bows. And then some of you here, you are very close to Jesus, and you are on mission to the city. And first of all, I'd say thank you. Thank you for loving Knoxville. Thank you for loving your neighbor. Jesus is the best part of our story, is he not? Not it is our battle cry. You know, know, that's why we named the church Legacy Church, by the way. Because the best story we have to tell isn't even our story. It's the story of another. It's the story of our hero. That is the legacy he leaves us, the gospel story, the good news of what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's our legacy to tell. I would say that as we pray and as we worship today, it'd be a good day to pray for those people by name. As you're back taking communion, as you're praying together, pray by name, pray for these people, that God would quicken their hearts, that God would quicken your voice. And that you would be able to move the ball down the field at least a little bit this week as a missionary. Go ahead and stand with me. And we're going to finish by reading a passage. It's a very cool passage. I love ending with passages that show how big God is. This is a good one to do it with in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. I'm going to read it to you. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And then at verse 5, we start to see a very beautiful picture of the gospel for you and me. And I said, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we're starting to see grace upon grace upon grace, that he could see this, 
that he could confess this. In verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for, which is what Jesus would come and do later for mankind. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so good to us, so kind to us, and so gentle with us. We don't even have the ability to see you, to see our dirt, to see grace, you, you, or to see how good you are. You just gift it to us. You just give it to us. Lord, how, how can we get bored from that? Lord, there's no one in this room that does not have an idol problem. I have an idol problem. Everyone has an idol problem. We make them with our hearts. We don't even need material to do it. So, Father, help us hunt those down and ask ourselves, where are you not sufficient? What is the taste I've developed in my mouth for that thing? And why do I believe you can't meet it? Father, help us, the board in the room, the unsatisfied see why that is, to really question, to really question, have we seen Jesus? Is Jesus growing? Help those, Father, who are very far from you. Help them see that you are working out of your goodness. And the only reason they feel so uncomfortable and so awkward and so nervous is because you've shown them not just their dirt, but what they need. You've shown them the remedy as well, and it's such a big decision. But Father, for all of us whose heart will not skip a beat, for all of us whose heart has just become bored, Lord, excite us again by the power of your Holy Spirit. Move our hearts. Move our hearts that we would cry out yes to you. Here I am. Send me. And that as we're sent, we are the, the people of not it. Just shiny people for certain. Not the light in ourselves, but just like John saying, I point to one who outranks me. Father, you are so good to us, and we love you so much, and we ask you to lead us in this moment as we worship you. Amen.